you're challenging years and years of the way that you're thinking. You're challenging beliefs that are so deeply ingrained, it probably goes back generations. But what happens is, is that when you redefine your normal, you're also taking control of your present and your future. This show is dedicated to helping you strengthen your family tree and live financially free. Welcome to the Marriage, Kids, and Money podcast, everybody. This is Andy Hill, and today... We're talking about how to create a million-dollar investment portfolio by 40 years old. This type of investment level would allow most folks to enjoy a comfortable and relaxed retirement and maybe even retire earlier than a traditional age. So how do we get to this level of wealth? What are the smart investment strategies to take and which ones should we avoid? To get some insight on these million-dollar questions, I'm going to ask someone who has achieved a million-dollar investment portfolio before his 40th birthday and learn how they've done it. Brian Weitzel is my guest today. Brian is a high school teacher, a fellow Metro Detroiter, and the host of the Ride Your Money Wave podcast. By age 35, Brian had a net worth of $1 million, a successful photography business, rental properties, and a padded nest egg, all while continuing to teach high school. Brian's millionaire success story has been featured in popular blogs like ESI Money and even Business Insider. When Brian isn't side hustling to millionaire success, he loves spending time with his wife, rock climbing, and skiing. Welcome to the show, Brian. Hey, thanks so much. Hey, everybody, I wanted to let you know, normally I do these things on Skype or online, so I'm seeing somebody through a computer. But today, since Brian is a fellow Metro Detroiter, I called him up maybe, oh, probably four hours before this interview or emailed him and said, hey, why don't you just come over? And lucky enough, he was able to be here. So Brian, let's talk about this story of yours. You know, when you started, you weren't always a millionaire high school teacher, right? When did you first become passionate about money? Yeah, far from it, far from it. I think I became interested in money out of necessity. My first teaching job was for a private school in Ann Arbor, and I was making either twenty-eight or $29,000. And for anyone who's unfamiliar, Ann Arbor, Michigan is a pretty high cost of living city. So here I was making not much money living in an expensive city, and I just said, I do not want this to be my reality. And so it was really at that point in my life that I made a conscious decision to take my sacrifices up front and to really live unlike my peers and to start trying to make more money and sacrifice where I could so that I could get out of this tight budget (laughs) as soon as I possibly can. So it was at that point that I really started picking up any sort of side income that I could. And I saw that that made a little bit of a difference and I was able to save and invest it. And we're talking about you know, tutoring, we're talking about guitar lessons, we're talking about being a host at a bar for a month or two before they let me go, (laughs) and anything to just scrape it together. And then as time went on, and I realized that when you're your own boss, that's when you can start to be more in control of your money, because the more value you add to a marketplace, the more you can charge. And it slowly started to shape the way that I thought, 
And then it was off to the races. So I kind of giggled when you were giving that very generous introduction to me. I'm like, you know, that sounds really cool and really interesting. But the reality of it was much longer and much less of a linear path. But hey, that's why we're here. To learn that path. So some of those side hustles you just said, guitar lessons, hosting at events. Where did you get the passion to try to continue to look outside of your day job? Was it just the fact that you weren't making enough to want more out of life? I think it's two places. One is I was very fortunate in the fact that I had an older brother who was interested in money um, and the stock market. And I also had parents who, I don't want to say grew up poor, but they, they grew up needing to watch their pennies. And they shared their story with me. And my brother, who was older, kind of guided my hand a little bit. And so I started saving and investing, not knowing what I was doing, but knowing that it was important at the age of 15. And that habit stayed on my radar screen my entire life. So whereas others, I think, were looking to you know, buy that lease car or go on that vacation, I knew, I didn't know how it worked, but I knew that this was important and this is something that I should do. And then to more, I think, directly answer your question, the second part was simply that the passion came from necessity. Like I refused after all the hard work of going through college and double majoring to, to be poor. I was like, this sucks. You know, I, I did not think that this was what it was going to be like. And, you know, I remember one time and I've told this story before, but I treated myself to a $6 Hungry Howie's like medium pizza. And I was going to I, it had six slices. I was going to divide it up. I was going to get three meals out of it. I was trying to be responsible. And I was so hungry that I ate the whole thing. And it almost brought me to tears because of the guilt. And I just said, man, life shouldn't be this tight. You know, I shouldn't feel guilty over over $6. So it's just really the the passion of learning the side hustle and, and how to use that to better your financial life came out of necessity. And it became freeing for you, right? I mean, you started to build some wealth or at least bring in more income so you didn't feel so tight. So talk about what you did with that extra income to build your wealth. You said you started investing at 15. Did the side hustle income go into that investment pot? And what were you investing in? Yeah. So in the beginning, and we'll kind of talk when I talk about the side income, that was when I graduated college, I got my teaching job. I had a few little jobs here and there. And really back in the day, the maximum you can contribute to a Roth IRA was between two and $3,000, depending on the year. So that was my goal. It was, I want to put away $2,000, $3,000 into my Roth IRA because that's the responsible thing to do. I can't even tell you exactly what I was invested in, but I remember the books that I read along the way that taught me different investing strategies, particularly A Random Walk Down Wall Street from Burton Machiel. That introduced me to the concept of index funds, which then introduced me to Vanguard. And Vanguard, of course, in the financial community <laughs> has, you know, it's like... Uh, They're the Vanguard. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I'm glad you could phrase that better than I could. And yeah, so the investing part was the simple part. It was more the behavior and changing the way you viewed things and getting control of over your emotions. So from the very beginning, it was always live below your means and pay yourself first. And so 
I started to make a little bit extra money, you know, a couple grand a year, but I continued to live on less than 29 grand. And then I got a public school teaching job, which I thought I hit the lottery because I started at 35 grand. And lo and behold, I still lived on less than 29. And as the side hustles grew, and particularly once I launched my own photography business, and once that started to equal the same amount of money that I was making in my full-time job, that's when I knew I was onto something. That's when I knew that my decisions could really be leveraged. And if I could live on less than one income, I could save and invest, you know, all of that and really expedite my investments. Yeah, I like that a lot. Two things that you you brought up there. You said something along the lines of investing was the simple part. And for a lot of people, that's the most confusing part. So how did you simplify it just to make it, I guess, super easy and automatic? I did two things. I fired my financial advisor, <laughs> <laughs> which doesn't sound like you're simplifying right. it. That was so scary. That took me four years to do. And once I fired him, then money became 100% accountable. And I realized that if I want my own retirement, I'm going to have to create it. I'm going to have, no one cares about your money as much as you do. So you have to learn about it. You have to learn the difference between Roth IRA, traditional 401k, 403b, annuities, all that stuff. And you don't need a PhD in this stuff. You just need the basics. And then from there, I read a few books. I read The Automatic Millionaire. I read A Random Walk Down Wall Street. I see it up there. Yep. <laughs> And really what it came from was on my lunch break, I hated reading. And on my lunch break, I said, okay, now that I fired my financial advisor and I'm in charge, I have to start understanding this stuff. So my goal was one article on Yahoo Finance a week. And when I came across a word I didn't understand, I had to then research it. And then once you started to realize the progress where, oh, I know what that terminology means. I know what that market is or whatever they're referring to. Then it became two articles, then three, then it was one a day, then it was like four or five a day, you know, and then it just becomes a habit. And the veil of investing and, you know, the veil of it being super complicated or difficult or you need to get an expert or be a professional, that's lifted. And you really realize that there are options that are set up to make it as easy as possible. It'll do the investing for you. It'll make it automatic. It'll even rebalance your portfolio and like a target date fund. If you just want one decision and walk away, you just focus on your habits, your emotions, your relationship with money and make it automatic and you'll wake up happy one day. Talk about some of those habits that can make it automatic and why that's important. Your first decision is your most important decision. And that is true in so many aspects in life, right? So your first decision for you, where you went to college, very important because that's where you met your wife. And now that led to kids and, you know, think of the journey that you're on. Imagine how how sad and different and horrible life would be without her, right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you and me both. I'd be nowhere. <laughs> yeah. I'd be in my parents' basement there still playing exactly. video games or right. something. So but your first decision is always your most important. And so when you get that job, your first decision should be, you know, looking at your 401k paperwork and saying, okay, before I even see my very first paycheck, I'm going to set aside 15% of my income. 
and then I'll learn how to live on the rest. And if you can't see it, you can't spend it. So my very first paycheck was $900. It was like 900 and change. I still have the receipt from my deposit years and years later. And still to this day, my paycheck from school, and I have a master's degree. I've been teaching 15 years now. My paycheck is, let me think, more than tripled. My paycheck is still just over 900 bucks. And so if you can't see it, you can't spend it. So that first decision is simply telling yourself, hey, I'm going to talk to HR. I'm going to put in 10%, 12%, 15%, 20%, whatever. And then you just you know, allow it to happen. Yeah. And then as your income goes up, you adjust by keeping your standard of living the same and you adjust that contribution rate until it's maxed out. Then you find the next bucket to max out and on and on and you replicate it. And it's not going to happen overnight for anyone who is listening. It's not going to happen overnight. It's a journey. It's a process. But once you start to see that momentum and you start to understand and believe in the system, then boy, oh boy, does it work. You were a teacher. I mean, you're talking about 401k. For teachers, is it a 403b? And then my question on that is, I've heard sort of mixed things about the 403b, like there's some good investments and not good investments. How did you make a determination whether you were going to invest in the 403b versus the Roth IRA or, or both? As far as I know, the 403b is the exact same legal structure as a 401k. So tax-free going in, tax coming out, 59 and a half, 10%, early withdrawal, all that stuff. The only difference is, I think to answer your question, is who the provider is and what funds are available. And so I'm very fortunate in the fact that they give us like five different providers, one of which is Vanguard, another is Fidelity. Yeah, I think a lot of times, I don't want to say a lot of times because I don't know, but what I've heard is that Sometimes they don't get the best options or providers, and that can have a major impact because you're either paying very high expense ratios or not having access to funds that really provide you the diversification need like index funds that can help you get where you want to go. Absolutely. I just sat down with my wife's portfolio the other day and looked at it and she was invested and this wasn't her choice. This was, you know, the advisor at her work in random funds with high percentage maintenance fees. And I just said, oh, no, 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 we're taking this over <laughs> and streamlined it and largely went index. And it, was, it wasn't it was how I would have invested. So yeah, you got to be careful in regards and do your homework in regards to what your investing options are. Yeah. As you started to grow these accounts and started to see the numbers tick up from, you know, four figures to five figures to six figures, was there ever any feeling or call that you maybe wanted to try some other types of investments, you know, single stocks or options or anything like that, that seemed more sexy or interesting to you during the path? Or did you stick with index funds throughout the whole process? My core is in index funds. They're boring. You're not going to turn any heads at a cocktail party. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like you're going to be over in the corner with about yeah. six other people. That, Get this really hot stock. It's called VTI, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, so the core of my investments are in index funds. I'm very fortunate in the fact that I have multiple streams of income and I also have a pension waiting for me. And that pension, I kind of treat like a bond. And so I can go heavier in equities and in stocks in my 
I would, I almost said youth, but I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of graduating from that now. Hey dude, I'm 38 too. We're young. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you still look good. You can do some push ups. That's right. <laughs> but so I, I take a little bit more risk, I would say, than the, a professional would maybe recommend, but that's because I also have, you know, this huge annuity or I should say pension kind of waiting for me. But having said that, I do invest in individual stocks that are largely buy and hold. And I kind of follow Warren Buffett's advice of everyone should have a punch card with 20 numbers on it. And every time you invest, you punch one off and that's all you get for your entire life. So it's basically like choose your stocks carefully. And so the times that I've gotten burned, the times I've gotten excited, the times that I've like followed a tip were all when I was in a heightened emotional state and felt this like fear of missing out or read a headline and said, oh yeah, that totally makes sense. And, you know, you only have to do that about four times before you go, wait a second, I've been here before. I didn't like the end of this. They were trying to sell readers, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So yeah, just slow, you know, slow and boring is really a, a good way to go. We'll be back to the show after a word from our sponsor. Let's jump back into the show. I understand that outside of stocks and your pension, that real estate was a part of your portfolio or is a part of your portfolio as well. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So the name of my podcast, which is called Ride Your Money Wave, it really came from this this mo- this aha moment where I realized that my passive income from real estate, which was about $1,500 a month at the time, would actually cover my mortgage and my living expenses. My mortgage was $1,100 at the time. And I went, oh, I said, oh my God, that's it. I'm like riding this money wave. This is awesome. (laughs) I don't even have to do any work. And I fell into it. I didn't go out looking to become a landlord. I was driving 105 miles each way to work when I got that public school job and I just said, you know what? It's in a down market. I got that job in 2006. And so I just rented it. I rented out the the house and then we had a pay freeze for five years, which wasn't fun (laughs) clearly. And I just said, well, if I can't bank on getting more money from work, being a teacher, then I'm going to have to make my own money. And so I bought a second piece of real estate specifically for renting it out. But now I've realized that owning your own business, that's really, for any of the listeners, that's really where the bulk of my money has come from, is owning your own business, becoming an expert in that market, finding your your niche, really providing a lot of value to your customer, and investing in the community, whatever that market is. That's huge. Your network is will open up so many opportunities to you. When I look at, at the bulk of where that money comes from, sure, some of it is from the compound interest, but we're only at the beginning stages of that, having invested for 20 years. I mean, imagine at the end of it, right? Absolutely. But what's the fuel feeding that engine? It's the money coming in. And so if you can find ways to make more money and then you make good decisions with that money, then you know, you're going to hit seven figures I would say within 15 years or so. Yeah, that's incredible. So we talked about a bunch of different side hustles in the beginning. Talk more about what your side hustle that you're most passionate about that's been the most successful. 
Yeah, by far photography. I mean, now when I meet people, I say I'm a photographer first before a teacher because I probably spend more time doing that. It's every weekend. It just consumes my life in a great way because I meet amazing people. I'm present for beautiful moments, weddings, proposals. And the interesting thing is that when you become better at it and you understand what the client is looking for more and the more problems of theirs that you can solve and the more value you can add, they will pay you handsomely for it. I get a little embarrassed talking numbers. It's weird, but I shouldn't. (laughs) So I'll just put it out there. But, you know, I probably average between four and six or seven thousand dollars a wedding. And then you're shooting proposals and maternity and, you know, all these other things that once you get invited into someone's life, they just want to keep you there. And it's great. Well, you must do great work. And we've paid that much for a photographer in the past too, for really important moments in our lives. And man, are they priceless. They really are. You're capturing moments that are so important and all the back end work to, you know, prepare the photos and everything like that and deliver them is a lot of work too, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah so it's a lot put in there. Well, let's talk about this wealth building and, and getting to a spot. I guess, what is your end goal? You know, what is, what is the overall goal of yours? Obviously we talked in the beginning about your parents helped you to understand and frugality is important. It can help you. Your brother helped you to understand that taking advantage of the stock market is going to get you where you want to go You know, in the end. But what are you feeling right now as, as a 38-year-old with this wealth that's been built? I guess, what is the end game? What's the, what's the ultimate goal for you? You know, if you were to ask me in like February, I would have said probably an early retirement. Yeah. My eye is set on the age of 49. Yeah. House will be paid off. I have a brokerage account that will gap me until I can access the true retirement funds and just kind of start a second career, you know, helping people understand finances, maybe finally sit down and write that book that I feel is in my head. But now having sat at home for (laughs) several months, (laughs) I want to work up until the day I die. Wow. What a realization that, that, that COVID has given you. (laughs) It's just the structure, right? Like I need that structure. You like working. Yeah. That's a good thing. Yeah. Work is, it provides purpose, you know, for me at least. And um, so now I think it's interesting because you're asking me in the middle of kind of a mental transition. I cross that barrier. I look at numbers and I say, no matter what, you're going to make it. I mean, even at like a 6% return, I think I'm going to end up with over 4 million and then a 3% drawdown you know, 120 grand a year. It's like yeah, more than you'd ever need based on your current living situation. Yeah. So it's a great problem to have because now the question is, how can I help the most amount of people or how can I spend this money according to my values? I never want money to change who I am or the relationships that I have. Uh, I give my mom a lot of credit. She is a very simple person. Her favorite thing is to sit on a 12-foot aluminum fishing boat and drown like $4 worth of worms. (laughs) And she always said that she she never wanted to have so much where she like never wanted again. And I'm, I'm blundering that a little bit. Nice. I see what you and her mean, though. I mean, you get to a point where more doesn't provide more happiness. Yeah. And it sounds like you've, you found that 
a certain level of annual expenses in your life makes you satisfied and a certain amount of work makes you satisfied. I guess as you're looking at all of the things that you do, is there anything that you're doing right now that more wealth would allow you not to do? Or do you love all the work you're doing currently? I think it's a, it's a catch 22. If I had more wealth, I'd probably have a house on a lake somewhere because look, Water is very relaxing to me, and I have a hard time relaxing. Yeah, and you can get that $4 can of worms, sir. Yeah, there There you go. (laughs) Right at the end of my dock. Who needs a boat? That's right. But at the same time, if you don't have people to share that with, then it's really not enjoyable. Relationships, I think, use that money to enhance relationships in your life. And what you realize is you don't really need a lot of money or really any money to have a great relationship. But taking care of the people that you love, certainly if if you have a little bit extra money and you can help them out, I think that's going to be coming down the road. That's cool. That's very cool. And I understand that, you know, you're married. And so how does your wife fit into this plan? It sounds like you guys share similar financial values, obviously. Yeah, very much. I am so fortunate I married my high school sweetheart. (laughs) That's great. And so she was with me when I had two nickels rubbed together and we were both broke. And so having come from, you know, starting at zero to then build this, it's great because it really hasn't changed her as a person. We actually just this week hired our first house cleaner and she like feels guilty about it. And I'm like, (laughs) listen, you're working to like 11 o'clock at night during these crazy times. Like, let's just outsource it. My business. And so it's funny, like we can definitely afford it, but she's having a really hard time. It's getting yourself used to it, right? Yeah. I think it's a, it's a good sign because she values a dollar too. So she, she kind of just lets me run loose. She knows I'm a numbers person. She's like, ah, whatever. Go look at your portfolio. <laughs> but we always stay grounded in our relationship and, and count our blessings. So, Do you think having lived through the Great Recession here in Detroit, we're similar age, had any effect on your interest in saving more? For me personally, probably not, simply because I was a saver before that. Mm-hmm. But when you see that tide go out, and you see how many people get wiped out with it, I think you start to revise what a comfortable amount of emergency funds is for you. So most people, like I remember back in the day, like 2006, seven, three to six months emergency funds. And now I measure it in like years. It's like, no, I want at least like one year, like minimum one year. And then if, you know, hopefully kind of like two And now with a global pandemic, that even (laughs) makes you want to change things a bit. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, saving didn't used to be sexy. But boy, oh boy, I think a lot of people's ears are starting to perk up a little bit more when they realize that saving isn't necessarily a bad thing or it isn't like frugality. In fact, it's quite freeing because you have a lot more options once you have that money in a bank that you can then, like you're doing, you can change your career path. You can grab a hold of your life. You can say, I want to dedicate three years to building this podcast empire and helping people along the way. I mean, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah it's been fun. And, and that you're right. I mean, having the money in the bank gave me the confidence to say, 
you know what? Go for it. You can. And if you mess up, that's okay. You got a long runway to figure it out and you got a, a great spouse that's supporting you. So absolutely. Well, there's somebody listening, Brian, right now, and they're thinking, you know what? I would love to be a millionaire too, but there's no way that I could work that much or work on the weekends. I just don't have the time or the desire to do that. What would you say to them? I would say, and that is a great question. So if anyone is feeling that, boy, perk your ears up. Here you go. (laughs) (laughs) I would say to them, the most powerful single lesson you can learn is the opportunity cost of money. And that will shape the way that you view your purchases. So I don't care what investment calculator you go into. Plug in your age, plug in when you want to retire, which I would say should be after 60 sometime and plug in a dollar and put in 8%, 9% return, hit enter, and then remember that number and every single dollar that you spend and now start associating with that. So I do this with my students and literally like $1 turns out to be like 80 because they're 15 years old, right? And they're retiring at like 68. We put in like 9% and they're, they're just blown away by that. They can't believe that. I say, yeah, okay, so that's $1. So now talk to me, what's something that you buy without thinking? And someone's like a Starbucks. And you're like, okay, how much is that? Oh, that's $350. Okay, well, that's $250. How many times a week do you do that? And then they just get sheepish. They like start to like slide down (laughs) in their seat, you know? And then you start saying, okay, well, you know, boy, $250 four times a week on your way to work, that's $1,000. That's $4,000 in a month, you know? And you do that over your whole lifetime. And it the room in the classroom just like becomes this like uproar, right? Kids just like going, oh my God, and like laughing at each other and stuff. And what it does is it unlocks the perspective that the most powerful dollar that you have in your life today is the dollar that's in your pocket. And so every decision that you make today is setting yourself up for vast amounts of money in the future. So if you're a 20 something and you're saying, man, I want to be a millionaire, where do I start? I would say it's two things. One, look at the opportunity cost of a dollar today. Go learn about compound interest. And then two, really start to realize that there are windows of opportunity that are going to be closing for you. So when you're a 20 something, you can house hack. You can get roommates. You can live like you're still in college, you know, even though you're making 40 grand a year and you can invest all that difference. As a 38 year old man with a wife and two kids, you're not going to be house hacking. You're not going to be taking on roommates. (laughs) You're not going to be living like you're in college, right? You may be sleeping outside in a tent, but you know, your kids will be in this beautiful home that you have here. So you got to realize that there's windows of opportunities in your life that are going to be closing because as life goes on, more responsibilities present themselves once you buy a house, once you have kids, once you're taking care of an elderly parent, you know, life happens. And so the least amount of financial pain and the most important decisions that you can make in your financial journey actually happen in your teens and your 20s. And I was very, very fortunate to have a brother who introduced me to this stuff, to have parents I could bounce questions off of. But then also I had the kind of the curiosity to go find those answers on my own. 
And I also didn't have much else going on. So I said, well, let me do this and fast forward. And, and here we are. Let's talk to the person who's not in their teens and not in their 20s. Maybe they're 38. Maybe they're in their 40s because we've got a, a broad span that listens to the show. And they haven't invested a lot very much at all. And they're hearing this and saying, wow, I could have done this, but I haven't. What advice would you give them today to get on this path? The very first thing I would say is don't beat yourself up and forgive yourself, right? We all come from different places. We all have different experiences. And, you know, wallowing in the mistakes that you made is not going to change your future. In fact, it's going to pull you back and keep you in the past. So the very first thing you need to do is forgive yourself for the information that you didn't know, that you didn't have, and move on. And then the second thing I would say is really start to develop a good relationship with money. Most people are so afraid of this. They, they fear accountability, but you need to have a relationship with money that is honest, where you check in with it, where it's almost like you're dating it. You need to you know, realize what emotional ties, what emotional triggers do you have with money? Does it make you excited? Does it make you anxious? There are money personalities out there and you need to do some research on which personality you are so that you can build a better relationship and control over your money. And then, and that, that can take some work. That's not like one blog post. That's like, that can take years of reflection. Let me, let me tell you. But then what I would recommend you doing is depending on where you are in life and who's in it, realize that, you know, ask yourself, what brings you joy? The happiest moments of my life is actually when I was like broke. It wasn't when I got the the keys to the new car or the keys to the house or anything like that. I mean, moments of pure joy were like playing cards at a train stop with my wife, you know, or no, just the, all kinds of times when we were broke. But anyway, and realize that that's, that's your core, right? So all the things that you think you need, maybe as a family or as a, a team, as a partnership, you kind of go on a financial diet and you press the reset button and you strip yourself of all the things that are comfortable and you start to be uncomfortable and you start to redefine what is normal to you. And it's, it's going to be a challenge. You're, you're challenging years and years of the way that you're thinking. You're challenging beliefs that are so deeply ingrained. It probably goes back generations. But what happens is, is that when you redefine your normal, you're also taking control of your present and your future. And so I know that one of the greatest aspects of my marriage is that we consider ourselves a team. She helps me on wedding days. I should probably help around the house a little bit more, <laughs> but we are a team in all senses of the word, financially, emotionally supportive, communicative, you name it. And, and so when you create a team, whether it's an accountability partner as a friend, or maybe you have a spouse or a significant other, or you create a team as a family, you can move mountains. You can get stuff done and it'll happen a lot faster than if you're doing it by yourself. I completely agree. It's good to have an accountability partner or just a group that just holds you accountable to your goals and helps you to get to the, the next level. Brian, this has been an awesome, awesome conversation. Where is the best place for people to connect with you and learn more about what's going on in your world? 
Sure. Well, this is giving me a kick in the butt to get back and start talking about money again, because once quarantine lifted, I have been doing nothing but photography, but I'm happy to answer any questions and help anyone who's who needs it. And uh, I would say the best place to reach me is by email. And that is rideyourmoneywave at gmail.com. This is the simple path to wealth, my friends. What a great chat. Here are my top three takeaways from my conversation with Brian Weitzel. Number one, keep it simple. I didn't hear a lot of fancy individual stock picking tricks or Bitcoin insider tips or options trading from Brian's story. I heard someone who invested early, diversified with index funds, consistently contributed, and had patience. This is how to keep it simple, simple, and effective. Number two, realize wealth building takes time. You might hear a story like this and say, well, I want to have a million dollar portfolio now. <laughs> like Farouk Assault moment, right? <laughs> well, this wealth building stew took about 15 to 20 years to prepare. So he didn't get it overnight. You got to be patient. You need to follow the steps and you will get there too. Number three, behold the power of compound interest. I loved when Brian discussed teaching his students about opportunity cost and compound interest. He encouraged them to realize what money invested today could do for them in the future. If you want to have an incredibly relaxing and enjoyable retirement, you need to plant those seeds today. As a quick reminder, everybody, this show is for entertainment purposes only. Be sure to seek out a professional for your specific financial situation. A big thanks to Dan Tabbitt for editing today's show and for Alec Collins for editing our YouTube videos. You can check those out at youtube.com slash marriage, kids, and money. And before we go for the day, everybody, I'd like to ask you a quick favor. I'd like to ask you to join me in something really fun that we do each holiday season, and it's called Big Tip Tuesday. So we've done this for the past couple of years. It's a tradition on this show and with our family where we go out and we give big tips to people who are working hard in the service industry. Now, I know this year is very different with COVID than it is in past years, but you're still interacting with people in the service industry, whether it's going to the store to get your groceries, getting takeout food, or eating at a restaurant outdoors. There are people who are working extremely hard to make ends meet, to help their families have a great holiday. And if you have the means and just the pure gratitude for their hard work, think about giving them a big tip this year. Now, you decide what big means or generous. You guys make that determination. Nicole and I, we've done $100 tips to waiters or servers, or I gave a group of $20 bills. I think it was about $100 to the janitors in my office last year. It's just those moments where you're like, thank you. You're doing really important work and you're working hard. And I want to recognize that. And if you have the means, this can be a really great way to express that gratitude during this holiday season. So if you want to do this, if you want to join us, please email me at andy at marriagekidsandmoney.com and tell me how much you gave, who you gave it to, and how you gave. Now, I won't share this information on the podcast because I know how personal giving can be, but I would love to track how much as a community 
that we were able to give. Last year, we gave around 820 bucks of recorded big tip giving, and I would love to exceed that and maybe exceed $1,000 this holiday season. So, Will you join me? Will you consider giving a big tip to someone who's working hard in the service industry, especially during these really difficult times? That would be a lot of fun. So let's bring some joy. Let's bring some gratitude. Let's bring some happiness to our neighbors who are working hard in our communities. Thanks for considering it, my friends. In the spirit of growth and inspiration, I'm going to end the show with a quote today from Helen Keller. I long to accomplish a great and noble task but it is my chief duty to accomplish small tasks as if they were great and noble. Decide your next right thing and take some action, my friends. Carpe diem! 